Thank you for downloading this episode of Heartland Podcast. My name is Rasmus Christgaard, and I'm the program director of talks at Heartland Festival. The talk you're about to hear is a live conversation that took place at Heartland Festival in 2017, and it's called On Art and Responsibility. It's about how art can raise awareness of political and cultural issues, and whether or not this is the artist's responsibility. The conversation is between Olafur Eliasson and Joshua Oppenheimer. Olafur Eliasson is a renowned Danish-Icelandic artist who is known for his installations and urban works, and he is often referred to as one of the world's most influential artists. Eliasson has, on a number of occasions, been verbal about political and cultural subjects, and has participated in projects that focus on socio-economic changes in developing countries, or projects that discuss the challenges of global warming. He sounds like this. Responsibility does transfer, but it's not something we can take for granted. It's not something we can also rely on the schools to teach our kids. It's something we have to constantly nurture and, and shape while, um, while acknowledging it. Joshua Oppenheimer is an award-winning American film director and the creator of two Academy Award-nominated documentaries. The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. Oppenheimer is widely recognized as one of the most important documentaries in the world today. Among other things, his work centers around human atrocities and seeks to investigate how they have influenced or how they have been perceived by individuals and societies. He sounds like this. What makes an artwork? Because you're trying to force people, invite people to see and behold and embrace the deepest truths about what make us, that, that, that make us human. The tour was moderated by Danish scriptwriter, director and consultant at the Danish Film Institute, Mikkel Munkfels. In uh, this global village, there's so much responsibility to feel or to take. We have a responsibility to ourselves, to the people near us, a responsibility to people we've never met. We're responsible for the hole in the ozone layer, for war, social injustice, and uh, uh, the melting of the, uh, well, the climate change. Um, and still, we have to get through life uh, and not die feeling guilty. We can either involve ourselves in political matters or NGOs, or we can go into politics and be part of the problem, or we can produce art to raise awareness, like our two outstanding artists here tonight, filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer and Olafur Eliasson. Give them a round of applause. Thanks. For you. Thank you. Enough applauding. I'm going to start out by somewhat challenging the premise here. I would argue that art and artists have perhaps two primary responsibilities. Uh, to attack and challenge art itself, and to attack and challenge the status quo. So. In that respect, from the status quo point of view, from the establishment's point of view, you guys are irresponsible. Would you agree? 
Joshua. From the establishment's point of view, I, I would agree. I think that our job is to force people to confront their most painful truths, and in that sense, our job is to hold a mirror up to people. We're on the island of Foon, and of course, I feel like our job is to do what the child in the emperor's new clothes does, which is to point at the naked king and say, the king is naked. The king doesn't like that. The status quo doesn't like that, but it provokes a kind of unease or shame where we find that all, we're immediately confronted with something we already know, and now we have to, uh, we can no longer pretend it's not the case. We can no longer remain silent. We're confronted with, with a truth that we knew and we're ashamed that we knew it and that we had been silent and then we have to speak. It becomes impossible not to talk mm. about the problems that previously you were afraid to talk about. Sorry, that was a rambling way of trying to say yes. Okay, yeah, but, but yeah, to say yes. It's a beautiful yes. So, so what you're saying is uh, it's the, basically the story of the emperor's new clothes. Taking responsibility is exposing the lie. Yeah, I, I mean... I, 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 Yes, it's exposing that which people are too afraid to talk about, but no. I mean, it's, it's interesting, because that's different from journalism, which is about telling people things they've never heard about, and, or, or exposing stories that are unknown. Actually, we live, as you said, complicit with all sorts of things, the melting, we, we've destroyed the ozone, we've created a hole in the uh, ozone layer, we're destroying the climate, we uh, are complicit with all sorts of violence, And we know it, and we choose to tell ourselves otherwise because the truth is painful. But if you can make people confront the truth that they're otherwise unable to confront, then they have to do something about it somehow, or they have to at least change their regard to the people close to them where they can do things, even if they're not, you're not going to make everybody into an activist. Yeah, and I guess you could also actually do it um, on a sort of very... Um Here and, I, here and now kind of uh, level, so I could actually try to expose some kind of structure. We could suggest that this room is now a part of a social experiment. Let's call it a work of art because I'm an artist. So if you don't mind, <clears throat> with regards to what you just said, so if you don't mind, let's do a small experiment together. And it does require a little bit of physical activity, which I think is a good thing because it also sort of investigates whether we are here or not. Right? And being here, of course, comes with a degree of responsibility. Why are you moving away? <laughs> anyway, no, no, so why don't you... So anyway, so first, first you need to relax, right? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so that means just taking it easy, I guess. Um, and and uh, let me just think, because it's been a while. It's a quite famous scientific experiment. It has no... Um, if you behave, it's, it's not dangerous. Right. So, the first thing you do, and, and um, you, you take your right arm up like this, roughly sort of in front. I mean, if you kind of look at me, because you need to see me, you take your right arm up, make yourself comfortable, sort of feel, feel present. And then you take your left arm sort of underneath it. Do you see? So you have sort of two arms. And then you take your left arm closer to the person next to you, But now you, you are pretending there's a... So, and just go on with it. Now, folk, look at your right arm while you tickle the person next to you. And <laughs> do, do that again. No, so... It's very simple. I'm very ticklish. 
I, I, watch this. He, he's not, this is hypocrisy because he's not ticklish. Yeah, no, but, right? I could yeah, just do this the, the whole time. We can have the whole point. talk. Like, yeah, not, right, anyway, no. Joshua, oh. that's not the point. The point <laughs> is, so even a, room, the, even a room like this has a certain construct, you know, a certain not yet verbalized construct, which is the social rules we, we live in and we uh, sort of, to a great extent, obey to. And to come to a festival like this also has to do with reconsidering the social norms, the definition of normality, and to what extent are we actually comfortable with re, you know, seeing things different, right? Tickling at a, another person is a small part of an experiment called the tickling experiment, which has to do with one cannot tickle oneself. It doesn't work. It's really funny. You cannot... And I have a few other experiments, but we should maybe not go on about this. Point, the point being... I think it's everywhere, this, these boundaries, and, and as, as uh, precise and with great artistry, you have addressed a structural uh, and, and an incredibly emotional um, topic in your film, which also had to do with addressing a set of invisible boundaries. And I'm talking about the act of killing, uh, which uh, really moved me a lot, Joshua's... Uh, renowned film, and if you haven't seen it, I, I recommend um, as painful it is to watch it, I really cannot give it the highest, uh, high enough recommendations to see it, uh, because it is, it's not a tickling experiment, I can tell you that. Okay, no. I'm just going uh, to stop you right there, Olafur. I think there's a point in there, I'm sure, about uh, maybe responsibility being somewhat contagious, like laughter, or like yawning, or like uh, physical reactions. I know that you've made laughter experiments with your students at, um, at the Institut für Raumexperimente. So, uh, this is what uh, it looks like when uh, you sort of try and make responsibility go from one person to the next. Maybe raising awareness will be somewhat infectious or uh, contagious. Um, I'm sure that's uh, why you're trying to make re uh, responsible art, uh, is to raise awareness. And th this is what students look like when they're part of Olafur's experiment or when they're high on LSD. Yeah. Let's see clip number four, please. As you notice, laughing is really contagious, and it does release, I mean, it's called fake it until you make it, and even when you fake it, it releases endorphins. You actually, even if we, if we pretend that we're laughing, like, <laughs> that my brain doesn't get it, uh, my, the brain doesn't know, and I will re gradually release endorphins and oxytomine and, uh, and a few stress-reducing type of uh, liquids circling, and if I go on, I can really get quite high. And, and, and it obviously comes from places where contemplative um, interconnectivity and so on. So there's a street yoga in India called lasting therapy, but there, there's different offsprings. Point I also hear with the students was to test whether a sculpture could be laughter. You know, could the laughing itself be a work of art? And so obviously we're just playing. It's a great way for students to get to know each other because at some point they really do laugh, I mean, actually laugh, and then at some point also they get really 
sort of emotional because of all the chemicals. Um, so let me ask the both of you, is that the main focus when you produce an artwork that has, that takes responsibility for one issue or another, is to raise awareness with others, or, or is there an equal amount of artistic um, vanity in it as well? I'm provoked by both points. I mean, one doesn't make an artwork simply. It's not if, if one you don't make an artwork just to just to get people to take responsibility. That would be somehow that then one should go into activism. I mean, one makes one makes an artwork because you're trying to force people, invite people to see and behold and embrace the deepest truths about what make us. That, that, that make us human, uh, or about, about our humanity. And I also think, um, I, I was sort of provoked by the artistic vanity mm. comment too, only because, at least for me, I, 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 on the film that Olafur mentioned, The Act of Killing, it was, you know, seven years of utter isolation. You know, no, no support, no colleagues who understood what I was doing. So it's a very lonely road. And that's not about vanity, it's about trying to reach something and make something visible that you know is latent. It's like the world is pregnant with the truth that people aren't looking at and you want to give birth to it somehow. I, I was just thinking in relation to our, the beginning of this, uh, it was, I think, Wittgenstein who talks about art as the humanity's groan, as the groan of history, uh, kind of the... Uh, you know, it's the, inco it's the incoherent emission of an emotion that defines our time. You know, we, we kind of think of art as about telling a story, historians tell a story to make sense of where we are and what's happening, but human beings also groan, and those are sort of the most truthful moments, and they're most art most of what's called art is certainly not this, but I believe what art should be is the groan or the sigh or the laugh, the giggle, the, 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 the emotions that defy words that are coming from a place of truth that's... Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought... I, 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 I agree with that. In, in, I think Wittgenstein, some of that he called in German eine Geste, in Gestus, in Danish, a gesture. I got it all now. And the thing, the thing is, it, I think the, the idea is that it's about offering an opportunity for, like you said, for the person who are then choosing to engage in the artistic um, language, uh, offers the opportunity to host the person's emotional, un, yet unverbalized, desire. So the gesture from your film, for instance, so the gesture from a great work of art is that you look at a painting, and that doesn't have to be mine, but a painting that you like, and you suddenly realize, oh, I know, I, I know that, or that painting gave a shape to a feeling that I identify with. It reflected, or that concert, that sound in that way that the singer, she just said something, which reflected our emotional need. So it was as if the f it was as if I was heard. Mm. 
So it was not me listening to the singer, it was her who actually was listening to what I wanted to say. I just hadn't found out how to say it yet. It's a, there's a key element there. I, I think you're talking about the same thing I was thinking of earlier about recognition, right? That you recognize yourself and your experience in an artwork and you haven't, something you haven't seen before somehow. Yes, yes and it's the respondability, so the ability to ask for the people to respond. And that's, I think, uh, almost a little bit like listening. So like when your film allows me an opportunity to express myself, and it takes me from being a consumer of your film to a co-producer co of the narrative of your film. And suddenly I feel, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually good enough to, together with you being the author and the, and the actors, to be a co-producer, meaning that reality actually relies on me to co-produce it, which is very liberating because that means that probably it matters if I vote or if I participate in, in the greater society. It suddenly it matters that civic infrastructure depends on me. And that's a very... Um, I mean, in a society where there's not a lot of listening, that is a very rewarding feeling. And that's, I think, where art um, has a quite unique standing in, there, in that sense, also, we're changed. You know, you're cha when you are holding an emotion that's painful and you groan, or you laugh just now, we're changed. Your relationship is changed to the person next to you having been giggled with them for a moment. Certainly my relationship is now different with you having been tickled by you, even though it's very asymmetrical because I couldn't tickle you back. Maybe... Uh -oh. but, but I think that there's a, I, I think that one is, cha and if you think of making someone groan or laugh um, as a kind of metaphor for what art does in the world or what it, what it ought to do in the world, what I think it ought to do in the world, then you have to just go back to this idea, you have to recognize that art should be always an intervention, mm -hmm. not it should be, to be responsible, a responsible intervention, an ethical intervention. And then you have to take, you have to become also the custodian of the moral consequences of the intervention as best you can, even though you're starting something in the world that is bigger than you and it will go on uh, and touch people who you'll never meet. But in light of our complete awareness of a lot of issues that demand our, we take our responsibility, where does that responsibility end? When does it become so daunting that it, it overpowers us and just produces the exact opposite effect? Like, I'm going to go to bed and never get up again. It, I don't think it actually ever ends. It's more about when do we feel disconnected from... When do we lose trust in ourselves so that we feel that, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to... Oh, this, this whole climate thing is my such... I'm going to be long dead and gone anyway. I'm just not going to have any kids anyway. So I think, it's, I think this is really the challenge, that it's so abstract. The, the responsibility is always there, but I think it's important to talk about also understanding that... Um, how should I say it? Uh, the, the connecting thinking and doing. You spoke about 
seven years uh, of, of working on something. But I guess you, we all know the feeling that when you have an idea, there is that little moment where you say, ooh, I had a nice idea. It almost feels like I already did it. And then you call up your friend and say, let's have a coffee and I will tell you my idea. And then it certainly feels like you're sort of almost half there. And then you kind of talk, you might even write an article about it or say something in, on social media. And then certainly it feels, and that means that there is a misperception of what doing is. And a lot of people think that doing is inside of thinking about doing something. Mm. And making art, I think, is very much about getting comfortable with the agony of turning an idea into a sketch, a sketch into a model, talking to a scientist, talking to a critical friend, and talking to, you know, testing and asking more and more people to get involved. And suddenly you have this journey which is turning thinking into doing, and, and it turns out that the, the quality of the journey is not in the actual steps itself, it's the consequences of all these steps. So that all the dialogues you had while making this film uh, must have been, you know, creating rings in the water with regards to uh, where is the impact of the film. Of course, the film or at the artwork at the end or the, this festival is one thing, but all the machineries that, that makes it. So responsibility, I think, is not always in the goal. It oh, is yeah. in the way we get to the goal. Exactly. And, and, and you asked a very interesting question earlier that we kind of skated over, which was, is responsibility like laughter or yawning infectious? And I think it's very importantly infectious. When we take responsibility, we feel less uh, disconnected and less alienated from one another. When we, if you think just for a moment of walking down a street, I mean, and you see, and there's homeless people, and there's, uh, who, who are just neglected. People walk past them, and they're just, human trash in most people's eyes and in the eyes of the state. Compassion, not self-gratifying uh, compassion, not where you make yourself feel good by giving some inconsequential amount of money, but genuine compassion in such a moment may not every single time spread, but it is infectious. And it's infectious, if, of course, to the person to whom you're compassionate, but it's also infectious to, if you're walking with a friend and they see you being compassionate and it changes the dynamic of your conversation for the rest of the evening. I think we should think about responsibility if we want to get away from the means end, uh, like the, is, do the ends justify the means uh, way of thinking that is, is, is the intervention responsible? If we want to get away from that, maybe we should sort of shift the discussion from responsibility to compassion. I want to and compassion, I think... I, I think... <laughs> I think that compassion is infectious and compassion makes us less alone. Okay. I agree completely. I want to show... I want to show one more clip. Uh, one of the things that Joshua does in his films, uh, The Look of Silence and The Act of Killing, is perhaps uh, some, uh, um, quite an extreme compassionate act, in that he gets the uh, uh, executioners and the perpetrators of the uh, uh, Indonesian genocide to reconcile with their acts and to face the truth and perhaps feel some kind of redemption. Now, at some point, Joshua, for some reason, decided to take on the responsibility for this. And uh, I think, as I understood you, 
Joshua did so when he first filmed two of the perpetrators bursting on how they, boasting it's called, on how they uh, used to execute people. So now, we get, now it gets dark. Yeah? yeah is it Prale Podensk? Prale? Yeah, Prale. So uh, they, here's two guys going through the motions for us. And uh, show uh, the first clip, please. Jadi inilah kami seretlah dia di sini pelan-pelan. Ah di sini lah yang diseret enggak mau dia kami campakkan dari sini dulu. Okay. Thanks. Um, Joshua Muliel has a point. He says that we're not only responsible for what we do, but also responsible for what we don't do. If you upon having seen this had walked away and said, "Well, I'm not going to make these films." I'm not Indonesian, this is not my problem. Uh, would it had, have plagued your conscience, or would you somehow have, have found peace with it? I think uh, it, it's hard to speak counterfactually. It, didn't, it wasn't an option. I, I was introduced, or not introduced, but I was in, shown who these men were by survivors with whom I was living in very close. And we were trying, I was trying to do something much more normal, which was to film with the survivors. But the army had threatened all of them not to participate. And then they came to me and said, look, you're here, you speak the language. Uh, you, please don't go home and ignore this, film the perpetrators. And when I found that they spoke like this, the survivors, and when the survivors saw this material, they said, we knew they would be open and boastful. Anyone who sees this will be forced to admit that, in a way, the, the killings of 1965, which is what they're talking about, where a million people were killed in Indonesia, in a way, the genocide has never ended because the perpetrators are still in power and we survivors, millions of survivors, are still living in fear. And, and, I, and they're living side by side. Living side by side. Victims and the I just, I just had a kind of, because you sort of frame this in terms of how I responded to that moment, and just, I was just imagine myself. I talked about being alone. I had one Indonesian person helping me record sound. I was behind the camera, watching. This is in January 2004, so a long time ago, and I saw these two men coming down the slope. And what struck me most were two things. First of all what you see at the beginning of this clip, that they're holding hands. Agile. And they're, very, they're caring for each other. And in a way, uh, my whole first, the whole first movie, The Act of Killing, was about trying to find that humanity from behind that hand-holding, even though neither of these men are in The Act of Killing. And then the second uh, thing I noticed came at the end of this walk, where the two men wanted to take... Uh, snapshots of themselves at the river to remember what was for them a fun day out and memorable because they were talking to a foreign filmmaker and they were posing giving the thumbs up and the V for victory and I was living in London at the time this was in January 2004 I went home from this shoot very upset and shortly still processing what I'd seen I remember on the way home there was a stopover in Singapore and I went into the art museum just because I had a little time, and there was this extraordinary exhibition of Indonesian painting in the Singapore Art Museum. And it was very sort of big, it was kind of like modern takes on history painting, but very violent and 
I just felt that all of this violence that people couldn't talk about was in these paintings. And I just remember sitting there, I was a total mess because I had no clean clothing on this very fancy bench in this air-conditioned room and crying. Just sitting and starting to cry, recognizing this, what you've just seen in these paintings. And then when I got home to London, I felt so alienated because no one would care what was on those tapes. But I knew that any Indonesian, a country of 300 million people, it's the size of America, any Indonesian would be astonished if they saw what was on those tapes. And then, in this, that same spring, came the Abu Ghraib photographs of American soldiers standing in front of hot people who they apparently, it appeared in the pictures, were torturing. And what horrified me and what I recognized in those photos was not the evidence of torture, but the people giving the thumbs up and the V for victory. And I just thought, in what moral vacuum could those American soldiers, who could have gone to high school with me, be standing, thinking that these would be nice snapshots to have, just as these two killers thought these would be nice snapshots to have. And I realized in, in that moment that this, making this film would not just be my response to impunity. That's a word that I know you don't have in Danish, uh, impunity. It means when people are above the law. Um, this would be my response not only to impunity in Indonesia, but it would also be my response to American torture and to Abu Ghraib and to how we are all much closer to perpetrators than we think. And it would be, therefore, a film about the present, how we live with perpetrators above the law in the present, and not a film about a historical documentary about what happened then. Yeah. I'd like to... I'd like actually to show another clip, just to show the, uh, the contrast. This is from a different film, and it's a different uh, perpetrator, a different executioner. But uh, he also starts off uh, his story by being somewhat uh, boasting and uh, uh, doing the V sign and the thumbs up and um, uh, uh, explaining about his uh, atrocities with a very sort of um, um, screen-like, in a screen-like way, with a smile on his face. Now, art can not only raise responsibility and awareness with the audience, uh, here's an executioner who himself becomes aware of the acts that he's done. And this is a very concrete example about what you talked about earlier, about art groaning, groaning, groan. groaning, and, uh, and uh, uh, sighing or throwing up or actually producing uh, a bodily reaction and not just a spiritual one. So let's see uh, the executioner Anvar on the roof, and he started out like these guys. Clip number three, please. Silah satu tempat yang sering kami laksanakan. That's what coming to terms with guilt looks like. Uh, we know it ourselves on a smaller scale, obviously. 
Are we responsible, Olaf, or do you think, for the irresponsibility of others? Well, I, I was curious about the fact this, to a large extent, had these elements of reenactment. And I'm very curious about the fact that the past, by reenacting it, can be made the present, as we can revisit any lived through narrative. And by re sort of revisiting a narrative, we know from psychology you are also offered the opportunity to reconsider it, and you might, might even change the structure of how the narrative has settled itself in your body. And, and um, so that's why I think the film is very much about, you know, this, the fact that we, we are quite capable, as long as we dare to, should I say, um, acknowledge the fact that what has happened in the past is not an objective, solidified, written in the history books, chronologically uh, sort of locked um, moment. The past is really relative from the presence or from where we see it. And, and knowing that, it allows for a lot of ideas that reality, by definition, is actually relative. And, and, um, and I think when you ask the responsibility question, I, I, I don't think we can say, are we responsible for others? But what I do think we can talk about is weeness. And sometimes we get more numb, or sometimes we get less numb. And sometimes we have a sense of weeness. We can see in greater societies that weeness tend to decrease in size. And there's a Danish anthropologist um, who actually it might be here, um, Andreas Röbstorff, who works on the sort of elasticity of Venus. So then you have populism, then Venus kind of gets smaller, nationalism, then the Venus is defined by, you know, different rules and groups and, and borders and, and, uh, and so on. And I do think that we have in ourselves the ability to recompose our understanding of Venus because we know that, theoretically speaking, we are all humans. Right? We know that the migrants or the refugee or asylum seekers are also humans, but to sort of see, see how do our thinking about weeness apply to the doing weeness. Right? So sometimes it's a, oh yes, of course, we are so nice, and especially in Denmark we are particularly nice. Our historical humanism has such great pillars that we are unrockable. But yet it turns out in the actions or in the doing, the Danes are actually a lot more limited uh, with regards to actions than they are with regards to talking. That's why I like this idea of thinking and doing. Uh, Denmark is very strong in thinking and talking about, and they are not as robust. I mean, they're not so bad also. We, let's, let's be a little fair. Uh, and of course, everybody here is so resourceful. You are the segment who are successful, right? You are not necessarily uh, the, the ones, but let's also face, even Denmark has sacrificed a lot of weeness uh, lately. And so, what can we then do? And who are we then? And th this is so interesting because it has to do with, do we feel alone or do we, f like, like a rock on the beach, or do we feel like we are one of many pebbles on the beach? Are we the crowdfunding community or the crowdsourcing or the crowd, are we the pebbles of the beach community? I mean, for this weekend, we are the pebbles on the beach at the Heartland Festival, but are we, 
are we here to consume or are we here to produce? So I think we have a pacifying way of looking at art, which is escapistically consuming. I sit back, I take in. Or we have artistic engagement, which are really asking you, and that's why I said, it reflected me. I was co-producing the film, the song, the painting. It reflected me, so I became the producer. I was not a consumer. I took a stand. I became a part of the pebbles on the beach, I'm, which is a Yoko Ono uh, phrase, right? I am actually a part of something bigger. I can feel the we, but feeling the we is hard work, and we mistakenly take it for granted that oh, we are community, I pay tax, then the we thing is sorted out, because the tax is kind of high, right? So it must be sorted out. And in that way, I think, yes, responsibility does transfer, but it's not something we can take for granted. It's not something we can also rely on the schools to teach our kids. It's something we have to constantly nurture and, and shape while, um, while acknowledging it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay, then. All, of, all of what you mentioned, you mentioned the word narrative. Um, is it easier, do you think, uh, on, a, on a scale, guilt scale like this, or, or maybe just in everyday life uh, or in politics, to create a false narrative? Is that easier than taking on responsibility? Because in your work, you've done um, like uh, uh, the, uh, the Little Sun, for instance, and the Ice Watch. Uh, and in both cases, there are opposing narratives that these things are not really a problem. Global warming, no, probably not man-made. Uh, the ice, well, it would have melted regardless. These sort of things. Is that, is that, is a false narrative simply easier than taking on the responsibility? Well, I brought, I brought you a present, Joshua. So I have two versions. And it actually answers to, this is the new little son. And I know some of the people here, as a few and saw, they say, oh, now he goes again, the little son. I've, been, I've really been pushing this. And, it's, and, and, and so I say it's a work of art and, and so on and so forth. But it's really a pebbles on the beach thing. Because today I will say a different story than I normally do. So bear with me. But anyway, I give it to you. It's called the little son diamond. So this is actually harvested sun, solar panel, uh, in Berlin. So a little Berlin sunshine here in Fyn. Oh. Uh, yeah, and I, it's a, it's a, it will last for all night. Um, and, um, just because I want to bring one spotlight, I guess. <laughs> but let me just say, so gradually, thanks to a lot of your support, uh, because I've been doing this for five years, we now delivered and sold uh, and brought out about 300,000 of these in sub-Saharan Africa like small, tiny, and it's so much work, and you know, we lost money doing it, to be honest. But anyway, so let's just say, one lamp, this is just 60 seconds, one lamp saves one family one dollar a week. That's $50 a year, 100,000 times 50, uh, anyway, let me just shorten it down a bit. 200,000, because we give five, four months uh, warranty, $200 in four years, right? $50 a year, four years, $200. Okay, 300000 is about $50 million. So, $50 million was because of this not spent on kerosene or petroleum. 
because that's what they normally buy when then they don't have a solar lantern. Anyway, so we take $50 million and say, okay, how much petroleum is that? That's 5,000 cubic ton of petroleum. Mm. That's actually only one tanker. It's, one, it's not the big Danish uh, ones, it's uh, the sort of the medium size, not the small ones also, that probably would have landed coming from Qatar going to Djibouti, where the tankers, they, they put the petroleum, right? So in one year, where there's a about, a, about 400 tankers in Djibouti, uh, every day, one approximately, we took out one tanker based on the pebbles on the beach principle, right? So all of us together, simply by adding a little thing here, a little thing there, we created a sort of a little movement. And of course, I, I thought we could have taken out 10 tankers. Maybe next year we will. But, but so, so the kind of we phenomena here is what is driving the Little Sun project. It's, it's a sort of a decentralized, uh, it's not really rupture because it doesn't somehow it's not spreading as fast as I want, to be, to be honest, but it's, it is not also not spreading. Good. Let me... Thanks. Let me, let me try and go back a bit to the beginning. Um, I started out by saying that art's uh, responsibility was to act irresponsibly towards the... Uh, the establishment. Um, uh, the uh, business and corporations and uh, so forth have, uh, uh, over the last few decades, increasingly had a focus on uh, um, uh, social values, social responsibility, corporate social responsibility. Is there any danger of corporations moving in on the responsibility and making that? Another project, another product, sorry. Well, normally, from an avant-garde point of view, we would normally try to keep the freedom of expression away from corporate interest on one side. On the other side, I believe in the collaboration between public sector, cultural sector, civic sector, and private sector. I don't think that public money are free. I also don't think private money, they are certainly not free, but generally speaking, what is needed is a navigational sort of tool. And what I is experiencing is that there is a lot of trust and loyalty to the cultural sector. That is why a lot of private sector is sort of looking at it, because the normal marketing or the corporation sort of general trust and loyalty is... is, is it, it's raining. So we should do another experiment. It's raining. No, let me just finish. So I'm just saying that with regards to trust, currently documentary films. It's like so trustworthy, right? It's very interesting that the cultural sector for the time being is enjoying high trust. See, now should we find, what are the conditions with which we integrate or have a relationship with the private sector? So I'm pro, I think cultural sector is very robust and I think there is ways to work with the private sector and I know this in the cultural sector this is not a very popular stand to actually collaborate and say, well, in the long run, the private sector is not interested in corrupting the cultural sector. In the short run, we, they need a campaign or something, yes. So I believe in, in the collaboration. Um, but take, yeah, yeah, you believe in the, yeah. But taking on, but, but doesn't it, isn't there a chance of actually polluting the truth? Uh, you mentioned that it was. Uh, uh, of course there is, of course there is, because we should never, 
Of course, when corporations become more green, or we saw just as Trump was pulling out of the Paris Accords, you know, you had ExxonMobil and uh, Mars, the, the candy corporation, urging him to stay in. When corporations, the, the, the concept, when corporations do things that are more responsible, that's a positive thing, but we should never forget why they do it. They constitutionally have to do it to make money for their shareholders. That is their duty. It is greed that fuels that responsibility. So, of course, the market can encourage, you know, uh, of course, there can be a green economy that makes it profitable to also be sustainable, and that we have to, we, we need all the ingenuity in the world to build, but we should never forget that corporations are, are out, out to make money. They're greedy. They're supposed to be greedy. That's what a corporation is. And yeah, but, let, but let me add to that, because I, I work now in 12 different sub-Saharan countries, uh, and I have learned so much, and I'm so grateful for the, for the amazing learning curve. Uh, and a lot of these places, the so-called public sector is pretty corrupt and incapable, and the most democratizing with regards to education and, and building up society is the private sector. So we also need to see there are different sort of corporations, and, um, and um, of course it's very complex and a, and a big topic, but I just think that we in Denmark have one idea of what is public and what is private, which is highly regulated and pretty well balanced, but I see a, gr I mean, the Lillesand project, we try to be more on the private sector side of things in sub-Saharan Africa simply because we think it has a greater socializing impact than the public sector, which has a higher degree of corruption and bad governance. But we, should, we also have to remember, though, Oliver, that the, I think we have to go back to this thing that you asked about narrative, and then you mentioned how documentary films are trusted. Well, by far, the most watched American documentary film in a long time was Bar Barack Obama's America which was made by a right-wing documentary filmmaker. It's peddling a narrative that's uh, about how Bar the Obama administration was destroying the country, how we should pull out of the climate accords, and so on. Steve Bannon, the uh, you know, special advisor to Trump, the one of his closest advisors, Steve Bannon is a, got his start and made his name as a documentary filmmaker, and his big Success was a documentary celebrating Sarah Palin, the governor of Alaska who was also running for vice president with uh, McCain back in 2008. So we just have to remember that these are, these are I mean, what, what we have to struggle for and the role of an artist is to actually change the narrative. Change the narrative so that people are able to behold truth, the truth of who we are in connection with each other and feel the requisite, the necessary, the inevitable compassion when we hold, behold that. Those are beautiful words to end this talk with Olaf Eliasson and Joshua Oppenheimer. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.